Welcome to the first of four lessons in a series called The Secret of Contentment. Let me start first by asking the question, why are we talking about this now? Well, we just came off a series called Moses, Muhammad, and Marx, and in that series, we looked at the conflicting worldviews, the conflicting religions, the different stories people are living out. And in those stories, we saw the clash of worldviews that has led to hostility in our culture and in the world, and it's led to literally violence on our streets. Put that on top of the fact that we are just coming into what we hope is the end of a year's worth of the coronavirus. This has been a year that's really tried the, the emotional stability, the psychology of our nation. It's been a difficult time and it seems like we can't quite get over the hump. So it seemed to me to be a perfect time to take a look at the New Testament and to follow the Apostle Paul whose trials in his life were just as severe, more so I would argue, than anything you and I have likely faced in our lives. And yet he had the secret of contentment. But first, let me set the stage just a little bit. I don't think we realize until you see some of the numbers just how the fear and anxiety and worry in our society has increased. I was just flipping through some news reports a few weeks ago, and this one surprised me a little bit. Through September 2020, a record 17 million guns were purchased in the U.S. through that nine-month period. In January of this year, 2021, saw gun sales surge 80%. And then last year, a record 5 million Americans bought their first gun. Now, why am I focusing on guns? Well, I'm gonna talk about fear and anxiety in a moment, but we've gone beyond the bounds of simple anxiety, simple worry about our lives. And these worldviews and this tension in our society has spilled over in very physical ways. This hits people generally a lot more severely than the stresses of the everyday working environment. Those two, however, have gone up. Here are some uh, statistics that I didn't like when I saw these statistics. According to US census data, this is from the early part of last year when the census data was coming out, one third of Americans exhibit signs of clinical anxiety or depression. Now this is not just having a bad day. This isn't just having a string of bad days. This is what's classified as clinical anxiety or depression. 24% of Americans show, quote, clinically significant symptoms of major depressive disorder, quote. 30% show symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. Now, I don't think I'm telling you anything surprising here. I think we all realize it's been difficult. What I don't think we realize is that we have been through a watershed moment. I mean, it's, no, it's popular now to say things aren't going back the way they were. Well, that's a given, I think. Uh, things won't go back exactly the way they were. What I wanna look at, however, 
is how to deal with these kinds of things in a sustainable way. I mean, you can have the mindset that said, look, we just got over a year's worth of coronavirus and, and maybe we'll find a way to have unity in our nation. Maybe we'll find a way to coexist with the uh, clashing civilizational views, world views, and then we can get back to normal. And I think that's not a very good strategy for living. I think the New Testament has a much better answer to the question, how can you be content how can you be joyful in turbulent times? And that's what I'd like to talk about. In the book of Philippians, in the New Testament, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers. And I wanna preface this by saying, the four ideas that I find in this letter are going to be useful to anyone. I mean, you could think of these as life hacks, you could think of these as uh, self-improvement type things, and they'll be of some use to you. But I really wanna say at the outset, the Apostle Paul was not talking to people who don't follow Jesus Christ. Now, will this be useful? I'm sure it will. It's, uh, you do not have to be tapped into the power of Christ to feel sort of the penumbra of that power. I remember one time, this is the most graphic example I can think of. I remember one time, uh, OG&E was one of my clients in my former life, and I remember going out to one of their uh, high, high energy power plants. And I remember walking up, you know, I had the hard hat on, like that's gonna help me any, right? And we go up and we get near these high power lines. And there's more energy in those power lines than I could probably describe. You don't know how many megawatts are in this, in this line, but all I know is if you touch it, oh, you're gonna be tapped into the real power. But even getting close, it made the hair stand up on my arms. And that's the way the power of Jesus Christ is. If you get close, you'll see some effect. But I'm not wanting to look into this lesson so that you could be a, a non-believer in Jesus Christ and, and just maybe make your life a little bit better. I hope your life goes well, but frankly, at the end of the day, that's not a very much use to us. Paul's writing to believers and he said this way of looking at life, these four ideas, these four transformational ways of living and thinking are really part of the peace that comes through Christ. I find that Christians struggle for peace and joy almost as much as people who follow the various secular worldviews or secular religions of our time. And I like to get to the bottom of why that is. So in this series, this is not just a learn, this is an integrate and a do. And so at the end of each of these lessons, we'll have action steps. They're things that I really want to ask you to begin to make part of your daily routines. And at the end of these four series, if you do not have a different outlook and you don't see the way to contentment, I will definitely give you your money back. All right? So let's jump in. Here's Paul's unbelievable claim. This is in the fourth chapter of this letter to the Philippians. And listen to this. They have sent him, by the way, uh, a gift and because he is in prison. So they're trying to help support him a little bit in prison. And so he's thanking them for that. But he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content 
whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I am well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is where the title of our series comes from, The Secret of Being Content, The Secret of Contentment. And Paul doesn't consider this a secret that is only for a few. It's a secret that only the ones who are initiates can get into. This is a secret that he is going to lay out in the course of this letter to the Philippians so that they too can be content whatever their circumstances may be. Our worry and anxiety is a reflection of the fears that we have. And the fears that we have are a function of expectations meeting external events. Our worry and our anxiety are a function of our fear. And our fear is what happens when expectations meet external events, particularly events that cannot be controlled by us. This is the essential problem of contentment and joy in life. There are different ways to answer this question. For example, the secular religions will approach this and say, yes, it is inevitable to have fears, anxiety, and worry because it is inevitable that certain adverse events will happen to you. And so the answer to this is to control your events as much as you can and get as much joy as you can and tolerate and and basically get out of bad circumstances as quickly as you can. That leads to a lot of interesting things. It leads to a throwaway society. It leads to constantly wanting the next new thing that might make my life easier or better. Sometimes that's a spouse. Sometimes that's family. Sometimes it's a gadget. That's one way to approach it. Look around at our world. You'll see how well that's working. Not terribly. Buddhism, which goes back 2,500 years answers that question in a really unique way. Buddhism answers the question by saying, all of this is an illusion and you should withdraw. And when you detach from the events of your life, then you will no longer suffer. Anxiety, worry, fear, and suffering is gone when you realize the illusory nature of our world. Well, those two extremes, disconnecting and chasing the new latest fad or person or spouse or whatever, hoping to find this elusive happiness, neither of those seem to be particularly functional. Paul, the follower of Jesus Christ, answers this question in a really unique way. He says, engage with your circumstances and you can still find contentment in the middle of a adverse events and adverse circumstances. And he's going to show us how. And I wanna start by telling you his situation because I think Paul's situation is a little clue to the mindset of him as he writes this. This map I'm showing you right now is a map of Paul's second journey that he took, kind of a missionary trip, if you will. He took off here from uh, Jerusalem and he headed north through Syria into what's modern day Turkey. Uh, 
He crossed over into what's modern-day Macedonia and then Greece and eventually made his way back to Turkey and all the way back to Jerusalem. That second journey took about three years, say 50 to 52 AD. And during that time, he came to this town of Philippi. Philippi, uh, then as now, was uh, an important city in uh, northern Greece, or in those days, Macedonia. And Philippi was very close to the coast, and it, so it was very Roman city, very cosmopolitan city, a lot of trade. And when Paul went there, he founded a church. What do I mean by that? He went and began to share the good news about Jesus Christ, and a surprisingly large number of people believed that good news and began to live transformed lives. And so they became a church, a community of believers. Paul went on his way, and time passed, and let's fast forward about 10 years. 10 years later, Paul was in Jerusalem when he was arrested. What was he arrested for? Preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Jews turned him over to the Romans. Actually, they tried to kill him, and the Romans rescued him, believe it or not. Romans held him for a couple of years, couldn't figure out what to do with him. He hadn't violated any Roman laws, but they really didn't want to make the Jewish leaders unhappy. And so Paul sat in a jail cell for two years in Caesarea on the sea near Jerusalem. And he couldn't preach, he couldn't travel, he lost his freedom, and they basically just kept him on ice. Finally, he appealed to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen. And so you see in this map, he begins this journey to Rome in the company of a centurion. The journey's not without uh, incident. In fact, they were in a storm in the ship in which they were in, and they thought everyone was going to die. Paul said, no, we won't. And sure enough, the ship was wrecked, and they dragged themselves up on the shore, and none of them died. Uh, but they all went through a life-threatening situation. And Paul eventually reaches Rome, where he goes back into jail, awaiting, back into Rome, Italy, awaiting the pleasure of the emperor, not knowing if he will live, if he will die. In his case, it really didn't make much difference what your defense was. All it had to do with was who had the most money and who had the most compelling political argument. It wasn't a particularly just society. So this is where Paul is in 62 AD, about 10 years after the founding of this church in Philippi. And so he's in a jail cell awaiting his fate. He's been imprisoned basically for about three years at this time. And he writes a letter to the Philippians. So I want you to know the circumstances of this because this letter is more amazing than you would think given his circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were writing a letter to people who had sent a gift, for example, to help with your expenses while you're in jail, if you wanted to eat much of anything, you pretty much need somebody to take care of you. It wasn't a particularly good prison system. I would probably, the first thing I would write would be, hey, how is the fundraising going for my bail? Or hey, does anybody there know a really good defense attorney? Instead, let me show you how this letter begins. Paul says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
This is really an interesting way to open the letter. In fact, this book of Philippians uses the word joy or rejoice more times than any other letter. This is probably one of the low points, and Paul had a lot of trials in his life, but this is probably one of the low points. He's potentially facing death. We don't think that he died in this case. We think he was released, but Paul doesn't know how that's gonna turn out at this point. And yet he begins by saying, I am so grateful for you, those of you in Philippi, and I pray for you, and I always pray with joy on every remembrance of you. And that's not unusual for Paul. This slide just has the opening lines of about, oh, eight or nine of Paul's letters. Notice, I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I always thank God for you. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, etc., etc. By the way, as long as we're here, I know there are folks that listen to this that didn't grow up Christian, maybe haven't read their New Testament, and uh, I'm sympathetic with you. That was me. I grew up pagan, did not become Christian till later, and no one is born knowing this. But you see these letters out uh, beside it. They're called books of the Bible, but really all they are uh, are names that we gave to letters that have come down to us. This Romans is a letter to the Christians in Rome. 1 Corinthians is the first letter that we have of Paul's letter to the church, to believers who lived in the Greek city of Corinth. Ephesians was a letter to the church in the city of Ephesus, Philippians. Colossae was a city in Turkey. Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia. Timothy was a person. The second letter we have of Timothy and Philemon was a person. And so those names, by the way, as you get into reading the New Testament, don't let that put you off. These are a collection of letters that are written to believers from Paul or Peter or James or John, various apostles of the time, and they are really practical letters about how to live your life, just like this one. And this one starts with this idea of thanksgiving. One of the key ideas that you're gonna see running through all of the New Testament, and it's gonna be very key to this idea of the secret of contentment, is the idea of perspective. In the book of Romans chapter 12, it says this in verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, following Christ is a heart transformation. It is a life transformation, but it is also, and perhaps first and foremost, a transformation of the mind. It's a different perspective on the world. It's a realistic perspective on the world. When we looked at the different worldviews or stories that people live out, some of the problems are living out a story that answers the questions of life and it's not a true story. Always results in conflict at some point or another. This worldview is true. This is the truth of God revealed through Jesus Christ and Paul says, no longer conform your thinking to the pattern of this world. In other places he calls it a futile way of thinking, a dark way of thinking. He said, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this idea of perspective is what I want to call that. And that is the idea that the events in your life determine your circumstances. 
They may be good events and you are successful, happy, whatever it may be. They may be terrible events and you end up in circumstances of suffering and anguish and anxiety and worry, etc. And the truth is for most of us, there's a mixture of events. Now, to the extent that we can control events, why we should. The New Testament teaches us to live wisely, to deal honestly, to be compassionate. All of these things are ways to spread into the world the goodness and truth of Jesus Christ. We can eat well and do the best we can with the genetics that we've been given for our physical bodies. We can treat people right in the expectation that that's the right way to live and leads to a more harmonious society. But at the end of the day, we don't control events and we don't act that way so that we can control events. The truth is that there are always gonna be events that we cannot control. The one thing we can control is our perspective on what is happening to us. I don't need to tell you the importance of perspective. I mean, in the self-help world, it's really uh, very popular to say the only thing you can control is how you're gonna look at the world, how you're gonna look at things. And that's true. That's like standing kind of close to that power line. It's true. It's not the whole truth, but it is a little piece of the truth. This is much more robust than that. This is the idea that our perspective on life is a particular perspective. It's a perspective that's true. It is literally having the mind of Christ. Also in the book of Romans, Paul talks in chapter eight, he says, let me tell you what your destiny is. Let me tell you where you're going. He said that you have been predestined, you've been chosen to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in terms of our heart, in terms of our deeds, and in terms of our look, outlook on life. And so that leads me to the first of the four key ideas. It has a lot to do with perspective. And the first thing is this attitude of gratitude resets our perspective. And that's the first thing you see Paul do in all of his letters is he resets his perspective from his prison cell as he writes to the Philippians, he said, well, I could complain. I could talk about how cold it is. I could talk about how hungry I am. I could talk about how unjust and unfair this is, but actually I'm gonna step back mentally, if you will, and I'm going to choose to say, every time I think of you, I give thanks. An attitude of gratitude is the first step in resetting our perspective. And he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I really want you to think about this. And by the way, if you wanna read this book of Philippians, it's very short, take you maybe, maybe 15 minutes just to sit down and read it, it's just a letter. And if you would read that a few times and let this soak in, look what he's saying. We tend to think of Christians as being defined by love, that's true. But love in the Bible is more than a feeling that your love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. The Bible doesn't think of us as fragmented or compartmentalized beings. Well, I'm loving, well, I'm analytical, well, I'm something else. The Bible understands love as being a compassionate process and a thoughtful process. And Paul says, this is my prayer. I give thanks for you and I pray that your love would grow more and more in knowledge and insight 
so that you may be able to discern what? What's the point of this? That you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And here's where I wanna show you what this attitude of gratitude does. The attitude of gratitude resets perspective. It's not like a pep talk, like, well, at least I have this going for me. At least I have that going for me. That's not particularly helpful. The attitude of gratitude gets us outside of ourselves. Fear and anxiety and worry thrive the more we look inside, the more I'm focused on me and what's happening with me and oh, woe is me or oh, how happy I am at the moment and oh, I sure hope nothing bad happens tomorrow. It's a very me-centric way of looking at the world. Gratitude by its very nature is other-centric. When you're grateful, you have to be grateful for something that's not inside you and you have to be grateful to someone outside yourself. Now, think about that a little bit because you'll find people expressing gratitude, but they don't know to whom they're expressing gratitude. And that kind of generalized feel-good, stand in a circle and sing kumbaya, is just gonna give you a little momentary shot, but it really doesn't do anything. The key to resetting perspective with gratitude is gratitude makes you look out. There's far less worry and anxiety when you're thinking about other people, you're thinking these good thoughts than when you're brooding on our own worry and anxiety. And it's this focus, this outward focus that makes gratitude so important to us. Now, the Bible talks about giving thanks constantly. You'll see it all through the New Testament. As you read your New Testament, and why not? Great time to do, since we've got a big snowstorm going and record low temperatures, read through your New Testament. You'll see over and over it talks about gratitude, giving thanks, being grateful for things. It's a way to get us outside of ourselves and focus on something bigger. So usually I like to quote some theologians to kind of give some support to uh, what I'm saying. I want to kind of appeal to authority. Well, I want to appeal to a little bit different theologian this time. Do you remember this guy? Remember this movie, by the way? This is a good movie. Since it's a snowstorm, might as well rent this movie and watch it again because there's really one interesting idea. The cowboy, the old cowboy is Curly, is the character. And so he's escorting a bunch of city folks who came out to a dude ranch. Uh, by the way, if this spoils it for you, I don't want you emailing me saying, oh no, I was gonna watch that. No, you weren't. Uh, you had plenty of time to watch this movie. So. He's escorting all of these city folk. They thought they were coming to a dude ranch, but sure enough, something happens and they actually need to go on a, a cattle drive. And so Curly, the, the uh, grizzled veteran cowboy is leading them. And he's having a conversation. And he says, you know, you city people worry about a lot of stuff. Now I'm cleaning this up a little because this lesson is rated G for general audiences. He says, you city folks worry about a lot of stuff but in actuality, there's just one thing that's important. And so Billy Crystal says, oh, great, tell me the secret. What is the one thing? And Curly says, well, that's what you have to figure out. Well, you know, I like this movie for two reasons. Number one, the idea of focusing and the idea of focusing outside yourself is kind of the key 
Committing yourself to something outside yourself is the key to the transformation of these city folk in, in the movie. But it's also, I like this too, because that's as far as secular worldviews go, is you need to get something outside yourself, but I have no idea what it is, and your life is chasing, trying to find that one thing. Well, that's where the New Testament's a little different. You would agree that there is a focus outside yourself, and the New Testament knows exactly what that one thing is. Here's Paul. We're just stepping through chapter one of Philippians. He said, now I want you to know, I've given thanks for you. I've prayed that your love could abound in knowledge and depth of insight. He says, and I want you to know, by the way, things aren't going all that well for me, but look how he, look what he, his perspective on this. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now let's not kid ourselves here. Let's not tidy this up. What has happened to him has been extremely painful, extremely unpleasant. When you read in the book of Acts, which talks about, uh, the second part of it talks a lot about the journeys of Paul and things that happened to him. This is not fun. This is not children's Sunday school like, oh, Paul was in prison, but it all worked out good. No, Paul suffered tremendously. Paul had the temptation to have a lot of anxiety and fear and a lot of worry for the Christians who were being persecuted around the world. But look at what he's focused on. I want you to know that what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel, to advance the good news about Jesus Christ, to reach more people that are lost and searching for that one thing, that one magical thing in their life that will make everything come together. And the reality is they're going to die still searching for that one thing. And Paul says, but we know the truth. And our God is a gracious God. He's the God who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one that's lost. And he said, so what is happening to me? He said, I want you to think about it the way I think about it. It's actually served to advance the gospel. As a result of my imprisonment, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. And we're talking about Caesar's palace in Rome, we're talking about the palace complex of the most powerful man in the world at that time. And everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He said, I'm here because I was preaching the good news. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord, most of the other Christ followers have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You would think that putting Paul in jail, making him suffer would intimidate the other Christians we really don't understand what it means to follow Christ if we think that. Christianity has always flourished in hardship. Oh, some will retreat, but Paul said most have become fearless because of this, because Christians see that one mission, that one thing, and Paul spells it out. He said, the key is preaching the gospel. He said, some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, etc. in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. What's Paul's focus? His focus isn't on his circumstances. His perspective is, look at what God is doing in the world, and I get to be a part of it by being in prison. Now that's not pleasant, I'm not kidding you, but the point is, 
That's his perspective. He said, I'm grateful that God has found a way, even in these circumstances, to extend the gospel. This is that single-minded focus. And then he goes on and he says this, now I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. He's gonna go before the most powerful man in the world, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he saying? Listen to this singular focus, and it's an external focus. It's not a focus on my circumstances, it's a focus on my calling. That's what the New Testament calls it, your calling. You've been chosen, you've been called out for a specific mission, and this mission was, Paul says, so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or whether I die whether I'm going through cancer, whether I'm in the best condition of my life, whether I'm in jail, whether I'm free, whether I'm the CEO of a company, whether I'm the janitor sweeping up, it makes no difference. Those are illusions that we have about what's important. Paul says, whether I live, whether I die, that's not an issue. I know what I have to look forward to. What's important is that Christ would be honored in my body. For to me, to live is Christ and to die, well, that's far, far better. We hear this phrase a lot, being a fully devoted follower of Christ. It's really popular in the evangelical world to try to, that phrase is there to differentiate the idea of a Christian who just gives mental assent, kind of a secular Christian, like, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, I try to be nice to people, I do the best I can. That's, that's not an unusual thing to find in any worldview, there are people who are not fully devoted to it, not following Christ. And so that phrase is a way to talk about what is the gospel about. It's about making fully devoted followers, not believers, not just mental ascent, followers of Christ. Here's what I wanna suggest to you. What if Jesus is a little more radical than you think he is? And what if this is what it means to be fully devoted follower of Christ? What if being a follower of Christ means to have this attitude that I pray that as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, whether by adverse circumstances or good circumstances, because you see, we are tempted to leave the path of following Christ by hardships, and I think sometimes we're more tempted by really good circumstances. Fame and success are as great a temptation to turn away from Christ as hardship and suffering are. And Paul says, regardless of the circumstances, I'm Christ's woman, I'm Christ's man, and I'm about exalting Christ in my body, in my speech, in my deeds. It's that singular focus of being fully devoted. As long as we're here, I wanna grab something that Jesus said and I wanna set it beside this because I really want you to think about this idea of being fully devoted. And by the way, this is all about perspective. This is all about changing the way we think. We're a long way away from worry and anxiety at this point. We're deep into adverse circumstances if you're Paul. He says, well, I may die when I go before Caesar, but I'm going to give honor to Jesus Christ no matter what happens.
I'm gonna give honor to him if he makes me the king. I'm gonna give honor to him if he sends me off to have my head cut off. Which, by the way, is what happened a few years after this. He said, I'm gonna exalt Christ. That way of looking at our mission in life and who we are and what we're about is the one big thing. And it starts with the idea of gratitude. Paul is grateful. Even though he's in this circumstance, he's grateful for the Philippians. Jesus said this. This will make a lot more sense now, I think. When Jesus was preaching, there were people who were bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them, kind of bless them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked the people. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why did he say that? Because he thought they were cute? No, it has nothing to do with this. Listen to what he says. He said, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Does it mean, oh, children get to be Christians? That's also not what he's talking about. Listen, I tell you the truth. Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That is an extremely profound thing to say. What is the trait of little children? Little children are by nature fully trusting, fully devoted. Little children love you whether you're a good mother or not such a good mother, a good dad or not such a good dad. And, and I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. My point is, Jesus said, you gotta have that kind of focused trust. You have to have that simplicity of, this is the way I see the world. I love you, I'm following you, and that's all there is to it. Children exemplify that. When Jesus said, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child if you wanna enter. You can't enter with our pride, can't enter with all of our schedules. We can't enter with all of our agendas and God, won't you come help me with all the things I'm trying to accomplish? No, you just need to follow me and trust me, just like this little child follows you and trusts you. That's the essence of being a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's actually the essence of being a Christian, a Christ follower. And notice, how that works against the fears and anxieties in our lives. Because that external focus, that complete dedication and trust, this is what the New Testament talks about when it talks about all who believe in Christ, all those who trust in Christ, better translation is trust in Christ. It's that single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. There's no room for fear and worry in that circumstance. We are so committed that our circumstances take a back seat to what's going on. So let's talk about what are we gonna do with this? I want you to read Philippians. I want you to think about the idea of perspective. And we're gonna go a little deeper each lesson because Paul's gonna go a little deeper. So we're gonna start at the surface level and that is an attitude of gratitude is a easy first step to get outside of ourselves, to reframe our perspective on our circumstances. The first thing I'd like you to do is to mine your past for things God has done. And I said mine in this sense, looking into your past is a lot like digging in a diamond mine. And as you sort through the things of your past, you will come upon just little gems. And when you dust them off, you realize that is something amazing God did in my life. 
I like to say that gratitude is best found in the rearview mirror of life. And what I mean by that is, when you're going through something, it's not easy to be grateful for the circumstances because it's not easy to have perspective. It, it draws us into our difficulty, our fame, our success, whatever our circumstances, they tend to draw us in with some immediacy. You saw what Paul did. He sat down, began to write this letter and says, the number one thing is, I'm gonna give thanks for you. He's resetting his perspective. That's hard to do. It's not hard to do when you look in the rearview mirror of your life. When you begin digging through your past, I'm not talking about digging for deep, dark secrets. I'm just talking about thinking through the things of your life. You will be surprised how often you will see God's handiwork as you look back. And that's what I mean by mining your past for little gems of look what God did there. I've never met anyone, never met a Christian who couldn't look at their past and go, oh my goodness, look at that. From this vantage point, you can so clearly see how God was at work in my life. Mine your past for those events because those are great sources of gratitude. You can be sure that if God was at work in your life then, God is at work in your life now. The second thing is, and this is something that uh, my mom told me this all the time, usually when I was fighting with my brother, count your blessings, and I wanna go one step further and tell someone about it. Count your blessings and tell someone about it. In other words, as you mind your past, you'll find things to be grateful for and you know who to be grateful to. You will be grateful to God for what he has done in your life. That may be people that came into your life. It may be tragedies that were averted. It may be tragedies that he took your hand and walked through with you. But you will see God's work in your life. Then count your blessings instead of your troubles. We all have a very detailed, I have a detailed list of my troubles. I've even indexed them. In other words, I can tell you all my troubles. I can do it alphabetically. I can do it chronologically. The point is we all know our troubles, but how often do we sit down and I like to write that down, write down just some things I'm grateful for and then share that with somebody. Tell someone you're grateful for their influence in your life. All of this does a couple of things. Number one, it's going to be encouraging to them and gratitude helps to reset our perspective. And then the third thing is this, give thanks daily in your prayers for something and someone. In fact, I'm gonna say something heretical here. I'm gonna suggest for this next week as you mine your past and find reasons to be grateful to God. And as you sit down and count your blessings instead of your problems and you give thanks for people and for things in your life, that you know what, for a week, you could just give thanks to God. You could, there's nothing wrong with praying for people, praying for situations, letting God know what's in your heart, what you like, it's like thy will be done, but Lord, this is what I wish, uh, may, it be, may it be so. Nevertheless, God knows what you need. It would be okay if you took a week and all you did as often as you pray, give thanks for something and give thanks for someone. It'll change your attitude. It will completely change your attitude. Don't worry, all those things you wanted to pray for, God already knows. But if you'll give thanks, you'll begin to see the Spirit of God work in you. This is like cooperate. Here's how I think of this attitude of gratitude. 
is cooperating with the Spirit of God. When I'm focused inward and I'm worrying and I'm fretting and I'm fearful, the Spirit's like, I, this is hard to work with. You're so consumed with yourself that I can't get your attention on the one thing. This is cooperating with the Spirit. So this week, I wanna challenge you. Mind your past for things God's done. Count your blessings and tell someone about them and give thanks daily in your prayers for something and someone. If you do those three things for the next seven days, you will begin to see the Spirit work and your perspective change. And you'll begin to see anxiety go down. You begin to see worry go down as your mind goes from inside to outside. In our next lesson, the Apostle Paul in chapter two, as he goes on in this, in this letter, he's going to take us a little deeper into what kind of a perspective should we have. So this week, be grateful regardless of our circumstances and I'll see you next time as we dive deeper into what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. God bless you this week.